This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Leadership Lessons. We wanted to give you a heads up that today's episode contains discussion of child sexual assault, domestic violence and suicidal ideation. If it does raise any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. The last 18 months have seen epidemiologists pushed to the front of public discourse as their advice has helped governments and the public navigate the pandemic. My guest today is Professor Lisa Jackson-Pulver, a rad jury woman, epidemiologist and one of Australia's most recognised experts in public health. Lisa is the first known Aboriginal person to have received a PhD in public health at the University of Sydney and has spent years dedicated to a career in academia. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the support of Salesforce. In this episode, Lisa generously shares the story of her challenging upbringing and how, through incredible grit and determination, she was able to envisage and create a better future for herself. As the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Strategy and Services at the University of Sydney, Lisa is committed to a career that improves the life of others placing First Nations inclusion at the centre of everything she does. So today we're coming to you from a lands that have never been ceded or sold, a lands that have always been loved and nourished and known for millennia by innumerable generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples of these lands. And to them, I pay my deepest respect to their ancestors, to their current generations and, of course, to those who emerge. I am a Wiradjuri woman and with that, the first thing we always do, the first order of business is acknowledge country that we're on. I'm a visitor to these lands, in Gadigal lands specifically, and uh, I recognise that this is a place that has really allowed so much to happen in a nurtured and beautiful and healing kind of way. Thank you, Lisa. And I too would like to acknowledge that I am on Camaragal land and I have the pleasure of working on Gadigal land and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their ongoing custodianship and care of this land that I get to call home. Lisa Jackson-Pulver, it is such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. There is so much to talk about. I almost don't know where to start. You are the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Strategy and Services at the University of Sydney. You're on the University Executive. You're a very senior educator. You've had senior roles in the Faculty of Medicine. You're a group captain in the Royal Australian Air Force Specialist Reserves. You're a recognised expert in public health. You're on the executive of AusSage, which we'll talk about. And you've had this incredible life journey and life experience that's brought you here. Perhaps let's start at the most current thing, because we're all still in lockdown. Let's talk about the pandemic and AusSage. Can you tell us a little bit about AusSage? There are people out there who wouldn't have heard about this group of people and group of experts. Tell us what they do and why it's so important. Yeah, so basically AusSage is modelled after a group in England in the UK called ISAGE. And what SAGE stands for is not some sort of magician, but actually a specialist advisory group of experts or a scientific advisory group of experts. And in Australia, AusSage 
is basically around putting together and having independent experts that are not beholden to government or to any kind of companies, such as drug companies, to provision the very, very best advice possible. Often when you hear experts talking about advice, it's often tempered by their employment situation or by other situations, whereas this group is a a bunch of independent experts that can come forth and give the absolute best gold standard advice uh, for the circumstances that are currently prevailed. So today we are in, I don't even know, three months of lockdown here in Sydney. It's a long time. Um, it It feels like it's been going on for a long time. And some months ago, we recognised that many expert voices that would love to have an opportunity of provisioning additional independent advice were not being called upon or some of the advice that was being provisioned, we believed, needed to have some additional lens and some additional perspective. And so when we talk about COVID advice, if you go to clinicians, you'll get very clinical advice. If you go to the political authorities, you'll get very political advice. If you go to economists, you'll get very economic advice. If you go to environmentalists, you'll get very environmental advice. What we needed was a group to come together and provision all of those different aspects of advice. And that's what Sage is. So we are a collective of hundreds of people who are trained in things as diverse as building and construction, environmental well-being, social emotional well-being, education, public health and epidemiology, and that's where I am, individuals who are experts in CO2 and fresh air spaces, for example, public health people, mental health people, psychiatrists, psychologists, you name it. We are that and more. And so that's what Sage is. So there's no membership fees, there's no invisibility, we're a transparent group. We post advice regularly upon our website that anyone can get access to and people are able to apply that in their own circumstances, whether it's in their own business circumstances, whether it's in their own school circumstances, public health circumstances and in our circumstances in the university environment as well. And I've had the privilege of being in that unit with you, Lisa, and I've seen the incredible collaborative effort that has come together. Like when working papers are being discussed, there is a real desire to create advice that is different in a sense that, as you say, it doesn't have any agenda. It is just to get the best outcomes and to see, you know, often 100 people collaborating on a working advice document is quite an achievement. Like I think in most other groups to get that many diverse and multidisciplinary voices on one paper would be near impossible, but it just happens to work. And for our listeners, you might remember Raina McIntyre, who was a guest in the last season, and she's been a real mover and shaker in pulling this together and credit to her because she's done an incredible job. Absolutely. And one of the best things about Sage is that it's not ego driven and it's not competitive. All of our voices, we recognise are needed because COVID is not a clinical problem or a public health problem or a problem of buildings or of schools or of universities. It is a problem that affects every single part of life and community. You know, it affects the farm sector as much as it affects drivers and transport. It affects government as much as it affects the private sector. You know, this is something that takes no prisoners. And if we were to be party political, then we would never get to where we are now. And you're right, it's an absolute joy to work with 100 people, many of whom 
from very, very different disciplines coming together for a greater good of what do we need to do now? And that's the thing with Osage is that we can get the information out there clear and transparent without fear or favour because nothing bad is going to happen to individuals who are part of this group because what we're doing is that we're using best practice evidence to provision that advice. So the advice that we're collating is not something that drives someone's agenda. It is absolutely what drives need. And it's coming from that deep, deep place of if we don't all pull together, we are going to be in very big trouble. COVID itself is changing. It is mutating. And while there are considerable numbers of people that are vulnerable, people who are at risk, people who remain unvaccinated or with only one jab, this beastie is modifying itself uh, and we don't know where it's going to go. And I don't believe for a millisecond that it's over yet. I think we've got a long way to go. We're going to be coming out of lockdown and we will see really how it moves through society, particularly in those at-risk groups. Yeah, and that's where I want to turn next. One of the lines that Osage uses again and again is leave nobody behind or no one left behind. And it's such a huge concept. It doesn't just cover First Nations Australians, it covers everybody. Talk us through why that's so important and how COVID is really threatening that. Yeah, so I'll come to you from my background, which is a data geek slash epidemiologist slash demographer, right? And so When we look at the data, and at the moment, you know, we're rejoicing there are 70% of the New South Wales population is now fully vaccinated. So no, it's not true. So what you've got is a large population, a proportion of people have been vaccinated, but that doesn't mean every single household and every single business and every single city has reached the same 70%. So you've got pockets just down the road here in Waterloo, Redfern, for example, where only one in three people who are eligible for vaccination have been jabbed. Whereas you go to some other parts of Sydney and you'll see people hitting 95% have had the jab. And so what you're seeing is that that 95% is being put into the figure that then says we have an average amount of vaccination out there of 70%. That doesn't mean anything more than that's an aggregated figure. The truth and the reality is, is that there are a large number of people that remain at risk of COVID who are not vaccinated, have not been able to access vaccine or have not been able to get the sort of advice they need to make an informed decision to go ahead and have the vaccine. There are people who are a little bit hesitant and there is a very small proportion of people who won't get the vaccine no matter what. But that is single digit figures. But the vast majority of people that are at the moment unvaccinated are not individuals who have chosen not to be vaccinated. So this is a really important thing. So when we say leave no one behind, we have to do what it takes to get the information out there so that people can make informed decisions about the vaccine. I have been working with a lot of people over the last few weeks answering questions one-on-one, saying that they don't want to get the vaccine because they believe that they're injecting something foreign into their body and that that foreign entity will somehow affect them into the future because vaccines are also new. Now, the reality is, is that vaccines have been around for a very, very long time and we've managed to get rid of a lot of very nasty things. You know, So in Australia, we don't have much polio um, and we certainly don't have anywhere in the world at the moment smallpox. 
very nasty diseases that have been eradicated or controlled by very simple vaccines. So vaccine technology is not new. Vaccines have been around for a long time and there is a lot of intelligence into vaccine and there's hundreds of thousands of people working every minute of every day somewhere around the world on improving what we're doing and adding to the knowledge base. So that's what people need to rely on is that the technology that you use to turn on your lights you know, this is not new technology. No, it's been around for a long time in the same way that vaccine has. So we just need to get people really clear on that. The other thing I've been hearing from people is that they're worried that it's going to somehow uh, affect their ability to have children or to breastfeed, uh, that pregnant women shouldn't get it, or that people that have had COVID are somehow covered. All of those things are easily addressed. And the upshot is get the jab. There are very few people that shouldn't have it, very, very few people. People who are immunocompromised need it more than ever. So, you know, it's really important that we sort of move away from the who shouldn't have it to how can we get everybody to have it because that's the only way our society is going to be protected from this. And one of the things we've been fighting against during this pandemic and during the lockdown is the disinformation that's flying around. And, you know, I know lots of young people who are getting their news from Facebook or from YouTube or from their Google searches and end up with the wrong information in their hands that's affecting their decision making. And I guess the only thing we can urge is for people to go to really reputable places to get their information. Anything that says health.gov.au seems to be a good place. Also, the other thing I've been asking people to do is if you've had your jab, go out there and talk about it. Talk about why you had the jab, especially if you're at an at-risk population. So you're seeing a lot of Aboriginal people now getting out there saying, I've had the jab. Why have I had the jab? Because I want to protect my elders, I want to protect my children, and I want to protect myself. I had the jab because for me personally, I want to be able to look after people that are important to me. I haven't been able to see someone that I'm the carer for for a long time and she is in a nursing home and she's flipped out because she hasn't seen anyone that she's known for a long, long time and that is not good for people. I had the jab for all of those reasons plus some. It is safe, it is effective, it is an act of love, as Ray Minicon puts it, an absolute act of love to your community, to your people and to your nation to have this jab because we have to get COVID behind us and the only way we're going to do it is by acting together as a group to move through this time and that's another reason why we're so clear on leaving no one behind. Lisa, what do we have to do to make sure that the vaccine gets into particularly our regional Aboriginal communities? We've heard a lot about the outbreaks in Wilcannia and other regions where they just don't have access to the facilities or they don't have access to vaccination. What do we have to be doing as a community to make sure that we care for those communities and they don't fall behind? Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things that's critically important is the role of Nacho and other community-controlled health organisations. They have got a very clear plan and we all need to get behind that and not undermine that in any way, shape or form and to support the community when they say we need role models, we need people to line up and get vaccinated, we need volunteers, we need people to drive these vans into Wilcannia well, as you saw the transports happening. But recognise also that Nacho and community-controlled health organisations are not in every part of Australia. They can't be. 
And so we have to rely on mainstream health services uh, to provision care. And one of the biggest things that we can do there is to make sure that those mainstream health services have all the help they can get to get culturally appropriate advice to communities. So one of the things that's happening down south at the moment where a recent outbreak has occurred is community members have been knocking on the doors. Hi, aunt, have you had your needle? No, love, I haven't had the needle. Okay, so what do you need to know to get the needle? Oh, I don't know if I want the needle. Why don't it make me sick? So there's this conversation that occurs. It takes a little bit of time, but guess what? Aunt goes off, rolls up a sleeve. Hey, aunt, can you tell those young ones to get it, please? And so this is what's happening. Now, this takes time. And unfortunately, health services have been, I don't know, derailed over decades, particularly Aboriginal community-controlled health services have been defunded, They've been marginalised. They haven't been given the resources that they've been needing for a long, long time. So now when you need to have that kind of surge capacity in community, it is just not there. And it's what we absolutely need now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think those organisations you've just mentioned did such a good job last year about keeping community safe. You know, they protected. They were incredible. And one of the things that came out of that was how sacred and how important the knowledge holders are in those communities who hold the cultural knowledge. For the people who might not understand that, Lisa, talk us through that a little bit and why those elders are so vital, not just to Aboriginal communities, but to all of us, because this is a shared heritage, a shared history. We have the oldest living, surviving culture in the world on this land. Tell us about that. You're right. Oldest, continuous culture in the whole wide world. Why wouldn't you want to learn from that? And I think the interesting thing is is that the knowledge that Aboriginal people have about country and the way communities work, everyone has a role and everyone belongs, these are wonderful practices that I think many people yearn for in their own families and communities. You know, to say Australians don't have a culture, well, I would disagree with that. I, I think we do. And I think we're growing our culture as we're becoming more mature and confident as a nation. And I think that maturity and confidence will come to the fore once we get to the point of really getting through this constitution, getting through the voice and embracing that and beholding that. And it's interesting because most of the people that seem to be more interested in this are the people who are new Australians and first-generation Australians. The fifth and sixth-generation Australians don't seem to get it. But the demographic is shifting. You know, we've got over a third of Australians speak a language other than English at home. Nearly a half of all Australians have got at least one parent born overseas. So that's shifting the demographic somewhat and that's shifting the conversation into a better place, a more positive place, a more engaged place and a place where people are wanting to know something of the language of the land. You know, there's very few people now that can't say what country they're coming from. You know, there's a lot of kids that are learning Aboriginal languages in school. We're going to eventually be a multilingual nation where English is but one of our recognised languages. You know, we've got a number of recognised languages at the moment in Australia. Uh, One of them, of course, is English. But the other recognised national language of this land is Auslan. And so it's really important that if we can have two national languages, we can have more. And uh, there's a really good opportunity for us to really grip up what it would be like to be a multinational, multilingual nation, which we've always been. What if we just uncovered what that looks like? And, uh, of course, we know what the majority languages are that are spoken in Australia, but there are a whole stack 
of Indigenous languages that are just desperate to emerge and take their rightful place on country. We've already got a lot of names for our suburbs and our communities and our places. People say Aboriginal words all the time. Now it's a matter of learning how they all belong together so that you can make meaning of it beyond a suburb name or a building name. There's more we can do and it's pretty exciting stuff. Absolutely. Lisa, one of the things that we're talking about on this podcast with all our guests is your career. You've had this incredible career. We touched on some of the things you've done at the beginning, but your journey wasn't always so straightforward, was it? No, no, I can't say it was. I I remember once I was doing this talk and I was introduced as this big esteemed Pupa professor type person and, you know, and I was talking at the table with someone just before I was introduced and she said, oh, wow, you must have gone to a good school. What school did you go to? And I thought, oh, my God. And the penny dropped. I think people see where you are now and assume that you've always been on this path of privilege and I feel very privileged to be in the role that I'm on but I don't consider myself privileged. So I got up and I said um, so everybody you know thank you very much for your time I'm going to be talking to you about these you know five things but first let me ask you some questions you've heard a little bit about me how many people think that I went straight from a good school or private school to a university and so the hands just kept shooting up and you know most of the group were people who had grown up knowing they would go to university, had grown up knowing they would have this splendid career. It was all mapped out for them or they mapped it out early. Well, because they considered it their right to go to university. Yes, exactly. And so I was talking to a group of people who have always lived the middle class. So then I said, well, here's my story. And I started off with, you know, I was a daughter of a veteran from World War II who came back home terribly damaged. They called it shell shock in the day, but we call it PTSD now. He should never have had children. He should never have gotten married. He should have never had anyone vulnerable in his life because he was a nightmare. He was an alcoholic and he was one of the cruelest and most violent men I knew. I told them I was a survivor of child sexual abuse. I told him that I spent a considerable amount of time couch surfing. My siblings and I went hungry for a lot of the time. Uh, My sister and I were picked up by the welfare group and sent off to camps for undernourished children, and one of them was the Mittagong Girls' Home. You know, we had a very, very tricky upbringing, very, very tricky. My brother was always shifted off to relatives, but we girls, I don't know why, but well, I do know why, but um, we were always forced to stay home. So when I was 14, my father attempted to murder me, and he shot a weapon at me, and, uh, you know, that was pretty much the last time I was at home. And so I bolted and, as I said before, I was couch surfing, sleeping in the back of cars, homeless. And then I eventually met a nursing nun who was an outreach nun and part of her serving of her God was to go out to the vulnerable. And um, she looked out for me and she told me I should get into nursing because in the day it was a hospital-based training program. In the day you had to live in a nurse's home. In the day they'd give you a nice fancy uniform, three meals a day and a room whose door you could lock. Pretty cool. But I didn't have a school certificate. I didn't have an HSC. I had nothing. And so she helped me enrol in a technical college course where I did the nurse's entrance and police entrance program. And uh, I passed it and got a job offer to start nursing at Lickham Hospital. 
it just changed my world because all of a sudden I was safe, I was secure, I was learning a trade. And so after nursing, you know, I started doing all sorts of things. My creative spirit was born, you know. I became a painter, a screen printer, a graphic artist. I set up a small business. But I was always hankering to get back into health. And so I then went off and wrote to the Sydney University and asked them if I could enter their medical degree. And uh, all my friends said, oh, yeah, you've got to be joking. You've got to be really bright to get there. Anyhow, by some miracle, they let me into the degree program. Now, I wasn't particularly bright. I worked really hard. But I didn't have any kind of true advantage behind me. So I didn't have any real money saved up beyond the first year. And um, the student allowance that you got from the government wasn't enough really to pay the rent and to provide a lifestyle and to allow me to do the intensive study that I needed to because I was way behind the eight ball. I was in a room with kids that had got pretty much the 100% of the ATAR at Sydney University, right, Australia's or one of Australia's premier faculties of medicine. And so needless to say, I had to repeat first year, but I finally got through first year and uh, I was in second year and I was really enjoying it and getting into a groove. And then suddenly I ended up having to look after a couple of children in my extended family. And so I couldn't look after these kids and study and you know, do everything. So I ended up enrolling in a Master of Public Health degree because it was felt I'd done enough to be recognised for having an undergraduate degree along with my nursing qualification. And so I did a Master's of Public Health and I haven't gone backwards I loved public health. I thought it was just the best thing since sliced bread. And so I went off and did a graduate diploma of epidemiology. I became an epidemiologist, a true public health person, you know, investigating outbreaks, leading public health teams, contact tracing, you know, did all that stuff for people. Every, so, everything that we know so much about now. So, yeah, that's right. So many people are couch epidemiologists, but it's it's real once you have to, you know, just shove a, something down someone's throat to get a specimen off them. It's great. It's real then. Um, but also, um, you know, I ended up doing a PhD and I became an academic and I, I'm just, yeah, so I've just moved on from there. But I, I just like people to recognise that, not all of us in these esteemed positions are people that have, have come through a regular path. Now, actually, I don't really know what a regular path is anymore. No, people increasingly have such non-linear career paths to get to where they are. The best thing about that story, Lisa, as you're telling it, is just the incredible grit and determination that you display, even in telling the story about your own journey. Where do you draw on to get that strength? Well, my story is my right to tell. The way I look at it is that I survived a childhood that still remains, even for me, fairly unspeakable. And I survived it. And one of the reasons why I survived it is because I was able to envisage a different future. And I had fantasies about my future. I had fantasies that if I were to live, if I were to survive this, because <laughs> there was a time when I was very, very seriously considering not allowing myself to survive. I always knew that I'm not alone. I always knew that there are others in circumstances like mine. And I always knew that there were others that weren't in as good a circumstance as mine. I didn't have an aspiration as such. What I did have was an ability to put one foot after the other and to do something. And I recognised that I am not the sum of my upbringing, but it does drive me and compel me to kick open that door to the university 
for people like myself and others to come in because having our diversity and having our stories and having our backgrounds and histories and communities and families in the door makes our university a much better place. And when you scratch under the surface, a lot of people have some pretty terrific stories and many of them are first in family. Yeah, absolutely. And that diversity, it's not just in a university setting, it's in companies and on boards and around tables and it's everywhere. We need that diversity and that plethora of voices from different backgrounds to come through everywhere. But I think that message is such an important one for people listening. You know, baby steps help get you through. It's drawing on your experience and listening to your story and other stories like it that I think give people hope that there's there's something better yeah I agree and there is something better there's always something better but you have to be prepared for it and I think one of the things that I've learned is that you make your own opportunities you know there's no such thing as luck really Um, people say oh that was lucky that Alice picked you up off the streets well you know I could have just said rack off which I'd said to many people before you know It's being able to recognise opportunities, being able to keep your own safety as well. Um, I've always had escape plans, you know, when when I was young, I always had an exit that I could take. They're all the safety mechanisms and people who think that they don't need them should think again because most of us are only a few months away from, you know, mortgage failure or, you know, rent failure or there's always these triggers and, So for me, it's really about being a good planner, being able to see where you want to be in the next few years. And for me, it's always been about learning. So what is it I need to learn? Lisa, turning now to the future, we're exploring different ways to lead for the next decade. And COVID has shown all of us that we needed to change, you know, whether it's hybrid working and working from home or doing podcasts like this over the internet as opposed to needing to do things in person. What's your take on what we need to shift to do things differently or better in this country? Well, I think there's a couple of things. The first thing is, is that we have learned so much about people. You know, we've seen more of the whole selves than ever. You know, I I saw a, a colleague's son walking out of the shower behind her naked um, because he didn't realise that her uh, background wasn't on. You know, like you just see so much more of your colleagues. You know, you I think you've seen more of a humanity and there are often people who don't really see that there are other things in people's lives and I think we've become a lot more compassionate. We've become a lot more stressed but we've become a lot more compassionate because we've seen the way others live. We've become more patient with each other, oh, which I'm so grateful of. But again, at the same time, our stress levels have been very high. And I think we need to recognise that once COVID has moved into a different phase uh, where we're able to deal with more the point outbreaks rather than what we're dealing with now, which is you know quite a lot of shutdowns across a large swathe of community, that we will be able to have a lot more compassion and patience, but we'll need to decompress. I don't think people have realised how stressed they are and how they're holding themselves now because everything just seems to be so critical and now we're just looking forward to the magic 11th or we're looking forward to the magic number 
that when that comes, if they're let down, then, you know, I worry about that. And we're going to have lots of those in the future. This is not over. It's not over and it won't be over for a long time. So we, we just have to remember that. The other thing is, is that having this hybrid workplace, I think is really cool. I, I don't expect that I'll be five days out of seven in the office. I expect I'll be four days out of seven in the office. And I'll expect that many of my team will also be similar to me, where they will be able to negotiate with others how they work from home. That won't be the case for everybody because their home circumstances um, don't. (laughs) Many people are just hanging out to get back to the work. I don't blame them. But, um, yeah, I think there's going to be a different way of doing conferences. Like in the past, we always used to have to hop on the plane, right, and go somewhere and see someone and do something and and add in a whole stack of things. Um, I still think that we will be travelling a lot for work, but we won't be travelling anywhere near as much as we used to. A lot of the large committee meetings and representative organisations that I'm on, you know, most of our work has been done clunky at first but now into a smooth process of Zoom, Skype, teams more efficient more cost efficient yeah we're more able to listen and to hear so i think i think our way we do our work is going to be different but what we need to do again is not leave people behind not suddenly think that because this is so efficient that means we can reduce the numbers of people in our workplace and that's going to be the big danger is how do we remodel our university, our businesses, our workplace, our economy, so that, again, we leave no one behind? Because I don't think it's fair that people should be in poverty because of this time. And there are a lot of people that are traipsing down that path now, not by their own accord. And it's really important that we make sure that individuals are able to have work that is dignified and to be able to pay their rent and not have to beg for reductions and people able to put food on the table without expecting the the fruit package to arrive from the, the gifters. These are important things. You know, we are a society that needs to rebuild its dignity and make sure everyone has that dignity and not just the privileged few. I mean, this is one thing COVID has taught us is inequities gap is just widening. Mm, absolutely. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can remember the compassion we've learnt and the empathy that we've learnt and the fact that the highest thing on people's wish list is to see their family or to see their loved one or, you know, I hope we remember that so that that's where the focus stays. Lisa, thank you. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Really appreciated. Sometimes our paths cross with people who personify grit, determination and service to others. Lisa Jackson Pulver is one of those people. During the COVID pandemic, through her work with Osage and in community, she continues to shine a light on equity and vaccination and protection of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. As a community, it is a strong reminder that we need to ensure we don't lose sight of leave no one behind. Lisa's openness in sharing the story of her upbringing is also a great reminder to all of us. The determination and the will to succeed and to fight for something better don't come from wealth or where we went to school or which suburb we live in. They come from our values and from something deep within each of us. Lisa is a great example to young people today starting out and indeed to everybody that anything is possible. We are better for having Lisa and others like her dedicate their work and their lives to improving the lives of others. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Leadership Lessons podcast produced by Alison Ho and made possible through the support of Salesforce. You can contact us via Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury. 
anywhere on social media. Women's Agenda comes out every weekday and you can read it and subscribe at womensagenda.com.au. If you are so inclined, please leave us a rating anywhere where you download your favourite podcasts. See you again next week. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. Thanks so much for joining us and see you next week. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.